earlier in this service, just a few moments ago, we recognized and honored some people in our church family who graduated from some kind of school, be it high school, college, or graduate school. Every one of these people that we recognized, and every one of us, in one way or another, learned something that we know, probably many things that we know, from a teacher. Even if someone doesn't finish high school, even if they learn a trade by which they are able to make a living, somewhere along the way, someone taught them something that was helpful to them in their lives. Some people benefited much from many teachers. Some people benefited a little from some teachers. But all of us have received some sort of teaching in our lives that has made an important contribution to our lives in one way or another. And in this instance, what is true in our lives generally is also true and very much true when it comes to the church. When it comes to the gathered people of God, teaching is important. Teaching God's word is important to the church. And that's because we need teachers for many reasons. One reason is to complete the Great Commission. We, and by we I mean the church, by we I mean specifically this local church. We need teachers in the church to do many things the Lord commands us to do. But one of those things is to complete the Great Commission. If you've been in the church for any length of time, I'm sure you're familiar with the Great Commission. It was Jesus' final instructions to us, the church, that we are to continue to carry out until he returns. One generation after another, we all have the same marching orders, the same instructions from our Lord Jesus Christ. And those instructions, of course, were given to us in several places. One of them is Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's the part of the Great Commission that gets the most ink, the most press, and it's important, but that's not the end of it, because Jesus goes on to say this, and teaching them to obey everything. I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Right there at the beginning of verse 20, Jesus says that part of the function of the apostles, and part of the ongoing work of the Great Commission is not just to reach people for Christ, although that's important, but it is to teach them to obey what Jesus has said. And so teaching is really important in the church. It's important for us to teach God's people, to teach you, so that together as God's people, we can do our part to obey and complete the Great Commission during the time we have on this earth. And so teaching God's word is important in the church. It's important to complete the Great Commission. It's also important to develop spiritual maturity. We need teachers in the church to help the church, to help us, the people of God, to develop spiritual maturity. In the book of Ephesians, we read these words. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says... So Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, 
the pastors and teachers, there's the key word, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I stopped the quote there, but I could have gone on because this is a magnificent piece of Scripture. It's an important one for us to understand how the church functions. And if I kept going on, I would be very easily tempted to, be, to divert from the passage this morning to talking about this one. So I stopped it here. But notice how important the teaching function is in the church. Just look with me at the underlying portions, because we, if we read the underlying portions, we see the point and the importance of teaching in the church. And so the underlying portions say, so Christ himself gave pastors and teachers to equip his people until we all become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you see how important teaching is to the maturity of God's people? We'll never become who God wants us to be, who God commands us to be, unless we have people teaching in the church. And God, by his grace, uses his word taught to make us mature, as he called us and commands us to be. So teaching God's word is important to the church. It's important so that we can complete the Great Commission. And it's important so that we can develop spiritual maturity. But here's the truth as well. We need more teachers than we have. We need more teachers than we have. And not just us. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, I would dare say, there is an emphasis on the need for more teachers. And let me just show you a couple of passages of Scripture that suggest this, that even New Testament churches... Even the people who were in the church during the days the apostles were on this earth, even they needed more teachers. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, Paul says this, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Now, I grant you that Paul doesn't use the word teachers here. He uses the word fathers, but he does so to draw in an image and to remind us of the family nature of the church. That when we teach, we do so not in a clinical, not in a sort of sterile classroom type environment, but that the teaching function of the church is part of the loving oversight that leaders in the church are supposed to have over the people of God. We are to shepherd you, those of us who are elders, but we are also to lead you and love you like a good father leads and loves his children. And Paul here bemoans the fact that the church in Corinth doesn't have enough many fathers. It doesn't have many men stepping up to leadership and taking on the teaching role of, that, of the church so that people can imitate these men for the glory of God. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews bemoans the lack of teachers in the church that he was writing to. He says, the time has come when you should be teachers, but someone has to teach you again the very basic principles of God's word. 
And what's true of the churches in the New Testament is also true of us here at Calvary Bible Church. Calvary Bible Church needs more new teachers as well. We need children's church teachers right now to rebuild our children's church ministry after the COVID shutdown. We've had to combine some classes because we lack the teachers that we need in this important ministry to our children. We also are going to need Sunday school teachers. If we're going to restart our Sunday school program in the fall, we need children's teachers and we need adult teachers to step up to the opportunity to teach God's word to the people so that, so that Christ commands to us and Christ's goals for us will be met in this local church, Calvary Bible Church. We need Awana leaders when Awana restarts to teach children in our church to teach them to follow Jesus Christ and grow in their faith. And so the church needs teaching. Teaching is a vital, it's an important part of the church's ministry. And that's because teaching God's word is important to the church. And so because of this, it is with great concern in my heart that I come to our passage for this morning. James chapter 3, verse 1. Because we need more teachers in this church, not fewer of them. And yet look with me at James chapter 3, verse 1, and look what James has to say for us this morning. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. I got to tell you that I don't like that statement. <laughs> Written on its face, that is. Because we need more teachers in the church, not fewer. And my concern is that at a time when we need more of you to step up to the opportunity to teach, that if we misunderstand this passage, and that's what it would be, a misunderstanding, if we misunderstand what James says in this verse, I may warn you off or cause you to shy away from stepping up to the opportunity to teach instead of, instead of hoping to compel you to take a step of faith in your life and step into the teaching role. And so if there is in the New Testament this drumbeat of the need for more teachers to be developed and to be serving in the church, and if in Calvary Bible Church we need more teachers to serve in these various positions of teaching in our church, how do we integrate that? How do we interpret this verse with both the New Testament teaching about the need to develop and deploy teachers and our own need to develop and deploy teachers? And I think there is a clear answer to it. And the answer, of course, is given to us in the text. Although James is warning us about the role of teaching in the church, there's a very specific nature to his warning. And that very specific nature to his warning is not to denigrate the importance of teaching in the church. It's not to try to say that we really need to restrict this to just a few people and stop having so many people teach. No, that's not the point at all. The point is this, that teaching God's word is important to the church, but teachers of God's word must develop spiritual maturity first. If we understand James uh, 3, 1 and 2, which will be the focus of today's message, I think we'll see that what James is trying to emphasize with his words is not to try to restrict the teaching function in the church to a few, but rather to emphasize the importance of spiritual preparation and maturity before someone becomes a teacher. 
not after they assume the role, and certainly not never once they've assumed the role. James is saying what he's saying in verse 1 to try to underscore for us the importance of developing spiritual maturity first and then moving into a teaching role in the church. And so the point of verse 1, when James says, not many of you should become teachers, the point of that is very simply this. Examine yourself before you become a teacher. See, that's what James is trying to get them to do. He says this very shocking statement in order to stimulate in them and in us some spiritual introspection. He's trying to get us to examine our own life and our own profession of faith and our own maturity as Christians before we assume the teaching role rather than trying to restrict the teaching role to just a few. And so let's look together at uh, verse 1 in a little bit more detail and see how it teaches us to examine ourselves before we become a teacher. Once again, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers. And this word not is put first both in our English Bible and in the original Greek because it is designed to be emphasized. In, in Greek, usually the early words are put where they are for emphasis. And James does it to so, sort of shock us and to sort of get our attention. And I think it's because in the church that James was writing to, or the churches that James was writing to, people were aspiring to teach before they had demonstrated the kind of spiritual maturity that was necessary to teach. Remember that just before this, passage. The the paragraph before this, at the end of chapter 2, James was trying to emphasize that faith without works is dead. He was trying to say that there are many people who profess faith in Christ, who don't possess faith in Christ. That there are some people who say they are Christians, but they don't live like Christians ought to live. James is now concerned that some of those people will step into the teaching office And they will begin to teach God's people, even though they aren't genuine Christians themselves. And even though they haven't achieved any spiritual maturity themselves. He knows that someone who does this is going to be a danger to the church instead of a blessing to the church. That's why James writes the way that he writes. It's to shock us into considering our own profession of faith and our own walk with God to consider the place of our own spiritual maturity before we try to teach others what it means to become spiritually mature. And the passage goes on and says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This word for teachers is a generic term, and I believe that James intentionally makes it generic. He's not here referring merely to elders in the church, although pastors, elders, they're the same thing in the New Testament. They are the, we are the chief teaching officers of the church. It is our job primarily to teach the, the word of God well to our congregation. But James wants us to understand that there are other kinds of teachers in the church, even beyond the elders, and that the things he is going to say to us about spiritual maturity apply to other teachers, They certainly apply to us who serve in the office of elder. But they also apply to anyone 
who uses the word of God to try to build maturity into other Christians and to try to shepherd others in their walk with God. And so James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. And then he begins to tell us why. He says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, going back to this word not for a moment, it could be translated not, or it could be translated another way. It could be translated stop becoming many teachers. And I think that's what probably James is trying to say here. He's not speaking about the church in general as much as he is talking about the churches he is writing to. Remember that the believers that James was writing to were Jewish believers. They were people who had grown up in the Jewish faith. They had grown up in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, the synagogue was run, it was ruled by rabbis. And rabbis had to be trained before they could assume the teaching office. Now in the church, however, there is no formal teaching process. There is no formal qualification process like there were for rabbis. Anybody, theoretically, in the New Testament church could become a teacher. And maybe some of these people who had been raised in the synagogue and looked up to their rabbi now saw an opportunity to be looked up to by assuming the teaching office. And so I think James is addressing a particular problem in the churches that he was writing to. But even though it's a particular problem in the churches that he was writing to, caution is still called for for all of us when we assume or consider taking on a teaching role or a teaching function in the church. And the latter part of verse 1 gives us the reason why we ought to exercise that caution. It tells us why we should be careful and examine ourselves before we teach other people. And the reason for that is that we are going to be judged more strictly. That's the point that James says. Notice again at the end of the verse, he says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There is a greater accountability that the Bible describes for those who serve in the teaching function in the church. And this greater accountability is not detailed by James, but other passages of Scripture help fill in the meaning for us. The primary thing I believe that James has in mind when he talks about how we will be judged more strictly is our accountability to the Lord himself. The New Testament speaks with some regularity, about how there is going to come a day when we stand before God in judgment. And part of that judgment, especially for, uh, certainly for us who are Christians, is how we have lived the Christian life. And when James talks about how we who teach will be judged more strictly, I think he has in mind that day of accountability, that day of judgment, when we stand before God and God examines with us the life that we've lived and the spiritual fruit that bore, that was born from the life that we lived. And James says God is going to hold those who teach to a higher standard. He is going to have greater accountability for we who teach. And other passages of Scripture reflect this at all. Here's uh, over and over again. Here's one of them. From the book of Acts, Paul, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, 
says this, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. That's a really solemn statement. Paul is saying, I'm off the hook when it comes to God. I'm not worried about the day of judgment because I've fulfilled my role. And therefore, none of you can point to me and say, I tripped up in the Christian life or I failed to become what God wanted to be because of what you did. That's why Paul goes on to say in the next verse, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Paul says, I'm off the hook as a teacher because I haven't shied away from teaching God's word. I taught the hard stuff. I taught the important stuff. I taught all of it. And I taught you what it means to follow Christ and to live for God with your life. And here, when he says, I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, he's saying that there is a day of accountability. Where those of us who serve in a leadership role and those of us who teach in the church will have to give account for how the people we taught and led live their lives. Not that we're responsible for the sinful choices they made after receiving God's word, but rather, were we straight with them? Were we honest with them? Were we clear with them about what the Bible teaches? And do we urge them to the best of our ability to follow Christ? That's the kind of accountability that the scriptures say. And that's what James has in mind when he says, we who teach will be judged more strictly. We'll stand before God and give an account of the way that we taught. We who hold the teaching role in the church. But there's more to it than just the accountability to God. There's also an accountability to the church. People who teach God's word are also held to a higher standard by the rest of the church family. And the Bible talks about this. And Paul talks about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he says this, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Because of the position of elder in the church, there are sometimes people who make false accusations against the leaders of God's church. And so Paul sets a standard. He doesn't say never entertain an accusation. He says it needs to be a clear and compelling accusation with clear evidence. And if there is clear evidence, what do you do? The next verse says, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. The Bible says that we who teach have a greater accountability, both to God and to the congregation and to the people of God. That when one of us sins in a way that would disqualify us, or in a way that is publicly known, that needs to be dealt with in a public way. And the reason is given at the end of the verse, so that others may take warning. See, even a sinning teacher can serve as a negative example. It can serve as someone... And, and, and in his probably last moments teaching, he can, be te- he can teach through the rebuke that he receives and hopefully the repentance that follows it when he is accused of sinning against God. And so when James says in chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. What he is saying to us and what he is teaching us is that there is a greater accountability 
for those who enter the teaching office. And therefore, because there is a greater accountability, each of us who teaches should examine ourselves before we become teachers. Now, these are very solemn words. And like I said, there's a potential for you or any of us to say, well, I'm not going to teach then because I don't want to be held to greater accountability. I don't want to have to answer for the blood of anyone when I stand before the Lord. And I certainly don't want to be rebuked publicly for when I sin. I understand that that's a natural response to this passage of Scripture, but it's a wrong response. The church needs teachers. And the response to this passage is not to say, none of us should teach because the consequences are too great. If that happened, the church would wither and it would die. No, the proper response is then to examine yourself to work on your own spiritual maturity before and during the time that you teach the word of God so that you are growing in your faith and so that God's word is working in your life, moving you toward maturity. And so in verse 2, James goes on and speaks more about this, um, this need to develop spiritual maturity first. And he says this, that you should examine yourself for maturity, not for perfection. Yes, you and I should examine ourselves before and while we teach the word of God, but we shouldn't set the, the bar so high that none of us qualifies to teach. The standard of teaching, the standard of maturity for teachers is not perfection, but rather it is maturity. Look at verse 2 with me. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, We all stumble. In many ways. The first thing to see about this is the inclusive nature of our stumbling. He says we all do it. That includes James himself. Although there is a high standard set for teachers, James immediately concedes and acknowledges, and you all know from experience, as do I, that nobody is perfect in the Christian life. But notice how he describes the expression of depravity that happens in a spiritual leader, in a spiritual teacher's life. He says we all stumble in many ways. And that word stumble, I think, is key. I think it's very important. Because it suggests a metaphor. It's the metaphor of walking. Every one of us, from the time we learn to walk as children, have had success in walking from one place to another, be it across the room or for a long ways. But all of us have had times where we stumbled and where we have fallen. Sometimes the stumble doesn't result in a fall. Sometimes it does. But people who walk will eventually stumble, and all of us will eventually fall. The word stumble, both in a walking context, and I think it's the reason why James chose it here, describes an unintentional tripping or slipping, an unintentional fall that results. And as you know, there is a difference between walking along a path and tripping over a a, a root from a tree and falling into the mud and getting mud on your clothes. There's a difference between that and what you did as a kid or what your kids do now or did when they were little, which is intentionally jump into the mud and play there. There's a difference between stumbling and diving in headfirst. And I think James uses this metaphor of stumbling while we're walking to emphasize for us that even spiritually mature people stumble into sin. 
But spiritually mature people don't dive into sin. And there's a big difference. Right now in the church, as there is in every era of the church, there is news about leaders, well-known leaders, who sinned in a way that disqualified themselves. Some of them sinned in sexual ways, some of them in other ways, in things that they said and so on. Some of them with money. Any one of those sins can happen to a spiritual leader, but there's a big difference between someone who is trying to follow God in their life and they unintentionally fall into that sin or some other sin and someone who lives in that sin and tries to hide it. Someone who holds to the teaching office and therefore projects themselves to be a spiritually mature person while in the background they're extorting money or living for the income that, the, that a very large ministry might bring to them, or being involved with people in their ministry in an inappropriate way. There's a big difference between stumbling into sin and living in sin and trying to hide it. James says, every teacher, he says, we all stumble, and notice the last part of, or the next phrase, I should say, in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. And I like the NIV's translation because I think it's right. He's talking not about the amount of stumbling, but rather the very different ways in which we stumble. That there are sins that we commit, some of which are known to us, and some of which we do and we're not even really aware of our own fault until someone or the Lord himself makes us aware of it. There are many ways in which we fall short of spiritual perfection and spiritual maturity. And so that means the goal for us as teachers is not a perfect life, but rather it is a mature life. What God calls us to in this passage as teachers is not to never sin at all, but rather to be growing in the Christian life. And when we stumble, of course, to deal with it in the right way, to seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of others, to repent and return to the path of righteousness when we stumble and fall. And so this is what James is describing here. He's describing the need for teachers in the church to live out spiritual maturity before they seek the teaching office. Now notice the, ne the next half of uh, verse uh, 2, the next part of verse 2. James says, anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now here James begins a diversion, and it's going to be a long diversion. Because James sees the sins of the tongue as being one of the hardest, maybe actually in, by his language, the hardest sin for people to tame. He is going to talk about it as a sin from here in the, the second sentence of verse 2 all the way through the end of verse 12. And he's going to generalize and talk about the sins of speech as applies to all of us. But he brings it up in this context, both because teachers use speech to speak to others, and therefore, since God holds us to a higher standard, we need to be good in the way that we speak, both when we're up in front of people and when we're not up in front of people. And also because it's a difficult sin to tame. 
And so we'll come back to the issue of sins of speech later in another message, in other messages going forward. But right now I want to focus on this, where James says anyone is perfect. And I just told you that the standard for God's teachers is not perfection, but rather maturity. And so it is with great, a great deal of dismay. It's the second time I've been dismayed in two verses here. But it is with a great deal of dismay that I come to this verse, not because of what it says, but because of the way it's translated. Both the NIV, my preferred translation, and the ESV, the preferred translation of others, and my backup preference, and every other translation I looked at, use the word perfect here, and I, I honestly cannot understand why. Because there is a Greek word for perfection, and this ain't it. This is a Greek word for maturity. It's one that means to reach the end goal. And that's what James is trying to emphasize. He's saying someone who tames his speech has reached a level of maturity. And that's what all Christians should be striving for. Remember the passage I, we showed, I showed you from Ephesians way back that says, till we all come into maturity in the faith. That's what God wants. He wants a church full of people who have grown in their walk with God, who have grown in the power of the Holy Spirit, who have grown in their obedience to Christ so that all of us are qualified to teach. Because we know the word and we've been matured by the word and we're able to pass it on to other people. And so James lays down this test of the tongue, not to try to disqualify us all, but to tell us that this is probably, for most of us, the hardest thing we'll struggle with. And if we reach a level of maturity where we can handle our speech, then he says at the end of the verse, that person is able to keep the whole body in check. In other words, that person is going to be able to manage their depravity. They're going to be able to manage their sin struggles because they've mastered or at least um, gained some level of maturity in the hardest thing for most people to manage. And so when we come back to the point of this message and we begin again considering the teaching function of the church and its importance, I've already told you that teaching is important and I hope that the emphasis I gave to that helps you to, to believe it and to feel it in your gut that teaching in the church is really important and we need more teachers. We need them desperately. But before you and I volunteer to teach, which was what was going on in the churches James was writing to, people were stepping into the office, they were volunteering. Before we volunteer, we need to examine ourselves and say, am I improving? Am I growing in my walk with God? Is there a pattern of maturity that's happening in my life? such that I can show somebody, both with my words from God's word and with my life, how to live a life that's pleasing to God, how to grow in the Christian faith and become a mature believer. And so the big idea for this message, the point of this message then, is to say this. Before you start teaching God's word, develop your maturity as an intentional act of faith. Again, we need teachers in this church. And we'll be contacting some of you, asking you to step up to the teaching role in our church. And it's a blessed role. It's one you should aspire to have. But it should be one you aspire to have as you gain maturity and as you grow in your own walk with God. 
And so as we conclude this message, I I just want to give you a series of questions to consider, to try to evaluate your growth in the faith and where you are in terms of your spiritual maturity and preparation to serve in the teaching role. I've put these questions into the app for this morning, and you can look at them there and think about them, but just think through them with me. The first question I would ask is, do you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's not in the text, but it's important because that's what James has been talking about over and over again. Do we actually have a living faith or do we have a faith without works, which is dead, a claim to faith? Some people who have faith without works, some people who have a dead faith, do so because they don't really understand the gospel message. And sometimes in the church, you'll encounter people who serve in important leadership positions that involve teaching, and they don't really understand the gospel. They can't tell you in a succinct amount of words what it means to become a Christian and how a person becomes one. And if you and I are going to teach in any role in the church, we need to at least understand that. We need to understand that the gospel can be boiled down to, or these, these, these words can help us remember all of the pieces of it, that, that the gospel is about God, sin, hell, Christ, faith, and repentance. If you can remember those words in that order, you can tell somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you teach in this church, someone should be able to, this would be a rude thing to do, but to be able to shake you out of your sleep at four in the morning and say, what is the gospel? And you should be able to say, God, sin, hell, Christ, faith, and repentance, and walk through those concepts scripturally and explain what it means to become a Christian. Do you know what it means to become a Christian? My following question comes right after that one, and it is this. Have you really believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's amazing. Sometimes you encounter church leaders who not only can't tell you what the gospel means, but if you ask them how how they know they're saved, they might say, well, I'm trying real hard. That is not the gospel. Someone like that has not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are, as we've seen in other passages of Scripture, believers who do understand the gospel, but they've never really believed and by faith received the forgiveness of sin that is promised in the gospel. Have you reached the place in your life where you not only understand what the gospel is and what it means, but that you have received the forgiveness of God and you've received the implanted word, as James called it in chapter 1, and you've had the Holy Spirit give you the new birth so that you want to follow God with your life? That's an important step of maturity for anyone, especially for anyone who wants to teach. Do you really understand the gospel? Have you really believed the gospel? Here's the next one. Are you working on your biggest sin struggles? James says we all stumble in many ways. None of us is perfect, and that is not the standard. But are you working on your biggest sin struggles? Every one of us is aware of certain areas of temptation where we are especially weak. That's part of dealing with the inherent humanity, the inherent, not humanity, the inherent depravity that God has, um, has judicially put on all of us, that we came into this world as sinners. That means we're aware of the ways in which we are tempted and the ways in which we sin. But the question isn't, 
Do you have sin struggles? The question is, are you working by the grace of God on your sin struggles? Are you putting to death, as Paul would say, the sins that beset us, as the writer of Hebrews would say? Or are you content to let the sin struggles in your life continue and persist and even grow? My next question is this. Have you seen growth in your struggles against sin? Of course you're not perfect, but can you look at your life and see where God has grown you? and Where your life has gotten more mature as a Christian? As where you've become more Christ-like in the ways that you talk to other people, the way that you deal with other people? Teaching God's word is important to the church. And we need more teachers. But we need teachers of a particular type. We need teachers who are growing in their maturity. And so I want to invite you and I want to see all of you become teachers in some way or other of God's word in our church. But before we step into that role, before we take that responsibility on, we need to develop spiritual maturity as an intentional act of faith.